Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The song that the trio just sang, and they did a wonderful job, but the song that they just sang is a setting from the book of Revelations, uh, where the Lord Jesus Christ is high and lifted up, and uh, around his throne there, uh, or in that setting around the throne of God, they're singing, worthy is the lamb, and they're crying out, worthy is the lamb that was slain, uh, to receive glory and honor and power, worship, really. And uh, what a beautiful, beautiful song. We gather this morning, and you'll notice the front of the auditorium is set up a little bit different than normal uh, for a Sunday morning. And uh, as a part of our service, the main part of our service this morning, we're going to partake in what we call, we're we're having what we call a communion service, or what we call the Lord's Supper. And uh, in the different container sitting on the table in front of me, uh, there's one in the middle and it contains uh, unleavened bread that represents the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus was a man born of a virgin Mary, lived a sinless life for 33 years and died on a cross, but Jesus was also God in human flesh. He was the Christ, that is Uh, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. And the bread, the unleavened bread, represents the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And his body was broken. And so before he was, before, while they just sang about him as a lamb, the lamb high and lifted up, worthy of worship and praise, you remember he humbled himself and he came to this earth, an earth full of sin and rebellion against God, full of sinners like you and me who deserve death and hell for all of eternity, and yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so he came and he was beaten and his body was abused and broken, not his bones, but his body was broken for you and for me. Um, The outside two containers contain grape juice in small cups, and uh, the fruit of the vine, wine, it's not fermented, it's not alcoholic, it's the term the Bible uses for grape juice, and uh, the grape juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. And of course, the Bible tells us that without shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sin. There's no remission for sin. If Jesus Christ had never shed his blood, if he'd never bled and died on that cross, there would be no forgiveness. There'd be no way for for you and for me to be forgiven of our sin. And we would be judged for our sin forever and ever. And so, uh, what what a wonderful service it is. Why do, we, why do we take time for a service like this? We, we normally do it on Sunday evenings. We do it about once a month on Sunday evenings. The Bible doesn't tell us how often we should do it, just that it should be done. And, uh, it, and it's something that we're all commanded to do. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read a passage here, and then we're going to turn again. But 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul was writing, the Spirit of God had given him the words to write. He was penning them down to a church, the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth, uh, they were going through the motions of celebrating. No, they were celebrating, but they were really not remembering the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ had made. They were getting together. They were calling it the Lord's Supper. They were believing that they were obeying God's command, Christ's command, to partake of the Lord's Supper. But some of them were, some of them were becoming drunk because of alcohol. Uh, others of them were bringing food for themselves and not sharing with other people. And it had become kind of a who's who kind of event. The church would get together and it would kind of be a look what I brought and oh, that's what you brought. <laughs> and, and there was kind of almost a party atmosphere and there was contention between believers. And it really was nothing like what the Lord Jesus Christ wanted it to be. And let me read to you uh, uh, up from this passage And I'm going to begin reading in verse 24, and I'm going to read down uh, a few verses here. It says, And when he had given thanks, speaking about Jesus Christ, he brake it and said, Take, eat, speaking of the bread, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. Verse 25, And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant. That's what the word testament means. The new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, and the word unworthily there means irreverently, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so I'll just say this, it's a serious matter to partake of the bread and the grape juice irreverently. It's a very, very serious matter. And uh, Roman Catholicism teaches uh, a doctrine that is unbiblical, okay? It's not taught in the Word of God, the doctrine of uh, the teaching of transubstantiation. And they teach, their teaching is, and their belief is, that when you put the bread in your mouth, it becomes the flesh of Jesus. And when you put the juice in your mouth, it becomes the blood of Jesus. Okay, the Bible does not teach that. We do not believe that. We reject it completely. But these elements, while they do not become the blood and they do not become the body, they represent that. You see the picture, don't you? The, bo- the bread represents Christ's body. The, the juice represents Christ's blood. And for us to partake of the bread and the juice and have a flippant, careless attitude like, you know, this is just ridiculous, what's for lunch, I wish I weren't here, Um, I don't even believe this. It is completely irresponsible, and it would be wrong to do that. Verse 28, notice he continues. How are we to partake of this communion service? Verse 28, but let a man examine himself. That's interesting. How many of you like tests? When you were in high school, you just loved tests. I've told you before, 
that when a person is not prepared for a test, the test is about the worst thing in the world. But when a person is prepared for a test, it makes all the difference in the world. One of the reasons for the Lord's Supper and the communion service like this, that Jesus Christ has commanded us to partake of, is it brings us to a place in our lives that we otherwise might not come. Most of us as high school students wouldn't have, most of us here, you tell me if I'm wrong, but most of us never went to our teacher and said, Miss So-and-so, I, it's just been too long since I've had my last test. Can I take another test? Is there just a, a test you can give me? I mean, I doubt. If, you, if that happened to you, you come tell me. I don't know if I'll believe you. But most of us don't go about through life looking to be tested. We just don't do it. And yet, testing is a good thing. Examination is a good thing. And so here, the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Corinth, let a man examine himself. And the word examine means to test, to scrutinize. And then notice he said, examine yourself, not examine your wife. Or or test your husband. Or test the guy across the aisle. He didn't say that. He said, let a man examine himself. That's a great great thing to do. And part of the reason for the Lord's Supper when we come together like this is God wants you and me to take inventory of our lives. Am I walking in the truth? Am uh, Am I living my life? Am I going through my life with known sin in my life? Unconfessed. I'm covering up sin, and I'm pretending like everything's okay. And, and the Lord knows that covering sin, like Proverbs 28 and verse 13 tells us, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth, whoso agrees with God and forsakes that sin, well, it will prosper. Um, And so he wants us to examine ourselves. And so it then says, And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, there's that word again, it means irreverently. He that eateth of the bread and drinketh of the juice irreverently, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Not discerning, discerning. Uh, A child, a young child is an undiscerning individual. They'll touch something that is hot to their own detriment. They'll burn themselves. They'll reach up and pull something down on themselves. They'll they'll hurt themselves because a child is undiscerning. And, and, And what Paul is saying is don't be that way. Don't be undiscerning when it comes to the elements here. Don't this is very important. While it's just grape juice and it's just unleavened bread, it represents something that is incredibly valuable. It represents the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it represents the blood of Jesus Christ by which you and I have been forgiven of our sin. And he tells us the person who eats and drinks flippantly, carelessly, irreverently, drinketh damnation, and it refers to judgment. It refers to condemnation. It has the sense for a believer of chastening. It's very important that we partake in the right way. And look at verse number 30. Paul says this, For this cause 
many are weak and sickly among you. Talking to the church at Corinth, and many sleep. Paul literally says, some of you have partaken in such a way of the Lord's Supper with known sin in your life and just carelessly. You know, really, I don't care. I'm going to go through the motions of partaking of the bread and of the juice, and I don't care if the sin is in my life, God. You're just going to have to put up with it. Or, you know what, I, I really rather I was somewhere else, and we'll get this over with. And many of the believers in Corinth were not discerning. They didn't realize how important, which is really sad for a church member, don't you think? Someone who's been forgiven of their sin and delivered from hell for all of eternity. Not to value the the sacrifice that was made for them, but that had happened in the church at Corinth. And so some of these believers, they were just going through the motions. And, And Paul says, some of you are very sick. The chastening of hand of God has come upon you because of how flippant you've been with the Lord's Supper. And not only that, some of you have even died. Some of you are dead because you've been too careless about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, that means discern ourselves, if we would take good, honest inventory of our own lives, we should not be judged. And that's what we need to do this morning. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. You know, God chastens us sometimes, it's true. Like you and I as parents chasten our children. Why? Because we don't like our children? (laughs) Because we like spanking? Yeah, I love that. That's wonderful. No, it's not that at all. I, I, I hate it. You know, I don't like it at all. I do it because I love my children. And I would much rather my son or daughter, either my sons or my daughters, receive two swats on the behind in a proper way and learn the lesson now when they're seven or five than have to learn the less, those lessons of life when they're 22 or 18 or 20. You see what I'm saying? I'd rather them learn it at this age and learn it with a much higher consequence later on in life. And our Heavenly Father does the same thing for you and for me. Why? Because He loves us. Our Heavenly Father, He loves us. He gave His Son for us. He gave His Son for us. So that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And He continues to work in our lives. And sometimes He chastens us. He brings hard things into our lives. And and by the way, our Heavenly Father, he, He does everything well and right. Some of us are a little hard-headed, and he has to use a larger reminder stick, you know. I will jokingly tell you that, you know, my children, you know, one of, you know, one of my, this can be said for multiple, but one of them is just so tender, and um, if they, they do something wrong, they're just almost immediately, I haven't even gotten to the point of corporal punishment. I haven't even gotten a reminder stick out, and they're just so sad, and they're almost broken. And it's like, you know, was there even in a point, okay, one, there we go, that's done. You know, they cry, I feel bad, we move on with life. And then there's, there's another, and it's like leather, you know, it's just, is that it, Dad? Is that the best you got, you know? 
And, and here's the thing, here's the thing, some of you are that way too, right? As, so I'm that way sometimes too. Instead of being tender and contrite with our Heavenly Father and He convicts us or we, we think something, we do something, we say something that we shouldn't do, it's wrong, it's sinful, and our Heavenly Father, He, he convicts. Um, and there's this brokenness and, you know, we, we come back to our Heavenly Father and we say, Lord, would you forgive me for this? And God, I shouldn't have done this. Will you make me clean again? And, and he does. He's faithful and just to do that. And there's restoration. And others, and maybe there's some like this in the room here this morning, you, you're, you've fallen in love with this world, and you're just, you're just bent on doing what you want to do. And, and your Heavenly Father, is, he's, he loves you. He's chastening you, and it's intensifying. And I'm imploring you here this morning, respond to your Heavenly Father. Respond to him because he loves us. Notice in verse number, verse number 33, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry, wait for one another, receive one another, is what he's saying. You know, that's one of the things even tonight we'll do. You know, we're getting together for this Awana uh, Grand Prix, and, and, you know, the children are out in junior church. But, you know, it's a silly thing. It's, it's fun, but it's silly. It's a silly thing. But you know what? We're going to come together, and we're going to fellowship. We're going to enjoy one another's company. We're going to laugh. We're going to laugh at each other. And, you know, it's just going to be a good time. We're going to, we're going to talk with one another. It's a time of encouragement. And, and whenever the church comes together, and not just for like an Awana Grand Prix event, but even on a Sunday morning like this, I hope you take time to wait for one another. I hope you take time for one another to talk to one another, to engage one another. I hope you take time to invite each other to your homes. But, but here, uh, this wasn't the mindset of the church at Corinth. Verse 34, And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. Because they were making this a buffet event. And that's not what this is about. That ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Now, I want you to take your Bibles just briefly. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul was giving some instruction, some corrective instruction to the church at Corinth. But I want to look for just a few moments at the very first Lord's Supper. Um, It was the Passover. And the Passover was something that had taken place many, many years before. And the nation of Israel commemorated God delivering them as a nation out of slavery, out of Egypt, because of an event that had taken place while they were in slavery in Egypt. And so the nation of Israel would gather together once a year at the time of the Passover, and a lamb would be slain, and blood would, the blood would be shed, and uh, it would remind them of God's deliverance, delivering them as a nation by the blood that was shed of a lamb. And it was also a time of great fellowship and great celebration, But the Lord's Supper, like the Passover, helps to remind us of Jesus Christ's death and the promise of his second coming. Uh, Look here at Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read in verse 26 and following. It says in verse 26, Jesus is speaking here. He's with his disciples in the upper room. Um, This is, by the way, the the night before he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And by the way, he knew that, and the disciples didn't. Verse 26. And as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, the New Testament. Remember, when he says, this is my blood, uh, that sounds like he's passing around a cup of his blood. But think of it this way. If I were to pull a picture out of, I don't have one with me. If I were to take my phone and I were to uh, show you my phone and say, this is my family. See my family there? Is that my family? No, it it is, but it's a picture of my family, right? And, And that's what Jesus Christ is doing here. He's saying, uh, this is my blood. This represents my blood. And I I think the disciples must have been confused. And he says, drink ye all of it. And then he says in verse 29, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine, this grape juice, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives, which would be where the Garden of Gethsemane was. There's three, three thoughts I want to notice from this passage, and then we're going to partake together. First of all, as Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, in verse number 26, he, he brings to the forefront of the conversation an emphasis. And the emphasis is on the bread that represents his body. Look again at verse number 26, and, and we're reminded by the bread, by the Uh, bread of the suffering of Jesus. Verse 29, or verse 26, he says this, and as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now again, just like the illustration I just gave to you, if I were to hold up that phone and say, hey, see my family there? This is my family. It's a picture of my family. It's not my real family. Uh, We're You know, that's just a picture. And likewise, this bread wasn't his flesh. He wasn't giving out pieces of himself to chew on. He was giving out bread that was a picture of his body. And so I notice, first of all, that when we gather together for a Lord's Supper like this, we are to remember the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the breaking of bread is a picture of his suffering and his death in our place. I want to read to you a description. It's a medical description of Jesus' suffering for you and for me. It was penned down years ago by a doctor, a Dr. Davis, and I'm going to read it to you, okay? It's a little lengthy, uh, but you listen along uh, as I read it to you. It says, The physical trauma of Christ begins in Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, with one of the initial aspects of his suffering. The bloody sweat. And many of you know what he's talking about. The Bible says that Jesus, as he prayed, the night he was betrayed, he sweat. He was sweating, and he, he began to sweat blood. Okay, And the doctor, Davis, he says it this way. It is interesting that the physician of the group, Luke, is the only one to mention this. <clears throat> it's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. And he says, And being in agony, he prayed the longer, and his sweat became as drops of blood and trickling down upon the ground. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hemothidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. 
under great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, mixing blood with sweat, and this process alone could have produced marked weakness and possible shock. After the arrest, in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they each passed by, spat on him, and struck him in the face. In the early morning, Jesus, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, was taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia. It was there, in response to the cries of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparations for the scourging were carried out. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman Roman legionnaire stepped forward with the flagrum in his hand. And this is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' back, his shoulder, and his legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. But then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the sub cutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. Small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. And when it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump into the stone pavement wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns is pressed into his his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport, and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage causes excruciating pain, almost as though he were again being whipped and the wounds again begin to bleed. The heavy beam of the cross was then tied across his shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail begins its slow journey. The weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by copious blood loss, is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough, wooden, the rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. At Golgotha, that was the place of the skull where he was crucified, the beam is placed on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of his wrist 
and he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the post and the titleist or the title reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, and a nail is driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet, and again there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and to bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send a flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps, and you remember this from the the account of scripture, he cries out, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Apparently, to make doubly sure of the death, the legionnaire drives his spear through the fifth inner space between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. Immediately there came out blood and water. We therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. It's interesting from a medical description to read. You know, Jesus in our text in Matthew 26, he's in the upper room. He's done this before with his disciples. They would have been reclining on their sides as was customary in those days, eating, celebrating the Passover. But this particular night, Jesus knows something's different than every other time. Um, Tomorrow, the day after this event, Jesus would be on the cross. We remember that on Friday, some on Wednesday or Thursday, but on Friday. And then he is raised from the dead early the first day of the week on Sunday. 
The disciples have no idea this is coming. Jesus Christ does. And as he sits there reclining with his disciples, he takes the bread and he passes it around and he says, Take, eat, this is my body. He takes the juice and he, the cup and he passes it around and he says, Drink ye all of it uh, in remembrance of me. And uh, this is my blood. And in the disciples' mind, they have no idea what's coming the next day. But Jesus Christ knows by the next day at 9 a.m., Jesus would be hanging on the cross. The Lamb of God. God in human flesh. And by 3 o'clock the next day, Jesus would be dead. And so he, he wants us to remember the suffering that he endured. And as each one of us partake of the bread, we are publicly acknowledging that we have benefited from the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you and for me as individuals. And that's where we get the name communion, a partaking, a sharing, a fellowship. And that's what this is. It's a communion. We all gather here this morning as a church, those of us who are born again, because we have something in common. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have it in common. I'm saved because his body was broken. Tim Maury and I have that in common. Doug Hart and I have that in common. And I can go around this room over and over and over again. We have it in common because Jesus Christ died and was, his body was broken for you and for me. Jesus was free from all blemish. He was killed by those who his blood was shed to protect. In verses 27 and 28, we're, we're reminded of the blood. Look there, verses 27 and 28. And he took the cup and gave thanks. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. And when he took the cup, what was in the cup? Grape juice, the fruit of the vine. And he gave thanks for it and he passed it. You know, we might skip over that this, this week as I was reviewing and looking at this passage it struck me he gave thanks for this i already mentioned here this evening and i read it from dr davis uh from a medical perspective his perspective of what jesus christ went through and suffered for you and for me but after matthew 26 here when he's in the upper room partaking of the lord's supper they left there and they crossed the brook kidron and they went up into the the mount of olives there to uh, the garden of gethsemane where they had gone before and The disciples fell asleep, and Jesus went a little ways apart, and he knelt, and he began to pray, and he knew what was happening. Judas Iscariot was coming, and he was going to betray him with a kiss, and and, and Jesus was going to be taken, and all of what I just read to you was going to take place. And and Jesus knew all that was happening, and and you remember how Jesus prayed, and and he was. He was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, the Bible says. His physical body was coming under immense stress. Jesus Christ, he knew what was going to come. And though he was Christ in human flesh, you remember him praying to his father, um, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And it wasn't that Jesus Christ didn't want to die for the sins of the whole world. It's not that he didn't want to save you and me but in his humanity, he knew what was, in his, being Christ, he knew what was coming. And in his humanity, there was a breaking down of his body. It was an overwhelming thing, a reality that he was facing to take the sins of the whole world upon his body. Every wicked thought, 
every evil thought, every hateful thought, every sinful action. For you and for me, every one of our sins he took upon his body. You know, the physical crucifixion is horrible enough. It certainly is. But truly, the agony for the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, was becoming sin. Holy God becoming sin for you and for me. So that you and I could be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's what we celebrate here today. We celebrate and we rejoice and we gather together as a church and we, and we sing beautiful songs and hymns together because, and we praise God's name because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And I can't help but notice here as he passes this around and they, they probably gave thanks normally, but I can't help but noticing is he stops and he gives thanks for the juice that represents his blood that's going to be shed within 24 hours of him giving thanks for it. And I'm reminded of the instruction that we receive from Scripture that we're to take up our cross and follow him. And I'm reminded of how many times in my own personal life when I face difficulty or hardship that I find myself sometimes in my humanity and frailness pouting and whining and complaining about going through difficulties or hardships here and there. And my hardships or challenges may pale in comparison to your hardships and challenges, but all of our hardships and challenges pale in comparison to what our Lord and Savior faced. And on this particular night, as he prays, he gives thanks. He gives thanks to God for the juice that represents his blood. And without the shedding of that blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Look at verses 29 and 30, and we'll conclude. Jesus wants us to remember his body that was broken for, for, for us, his blood that was shed so that we could be saved. But thirdly and finally, he wants us to remember there's a coming kingdom in the future. Look at verses 29 and 30. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now that hasn't happened yet. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. They went down across where he prayed. The uh, trio sang tonight, or this morning about worthy is the lamb slain who sits upon the throne. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. He sits in the right hand of his father today. And there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to catch all those who are saved to a way to be with him for all of eternity. There's going to come a time of terrible tribulation upon the earth. And then Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords for a thousand years. And then he's going to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords for all of eternity. And Jesus Christ, the night before he died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and for the sins of the whole world, he wanted his disciples to remember three things. Remember my body that was broken for you. Remember my blood by which you have received forgiveness of sins. 
And remember, there's coming a day where we're going to be together again in God's kingdom for all of eternity. And so tonight, as we partake of these elements, I want you and I to remember these things. This is not just something we go through the motions of. We do this in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.